So John chapter 14. Uh, So last week, we were looking at this moment. Uh, It's after the Last Supper, after everything that's happened in the upper room. Jesus is telling his followers, I'm I'm leaving, um, but I don't want your hearts to be unnecessarily stirred up. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But the reality is that for Jesus' closest followers, their hearts are, are breaking over this news. Their, their hearts are breaking because they're going to experience what, what a lot of you have experienced, a, a, a kind of loss that's really, it's hard to navigate. It's difficult to navigate. It does trouble your heart when you lose someone that you love so much, that's so close to you. That's what the, the disciples are going through. They're filled with anxiety. They're, 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 they're scared. They're confused. And so Jesus is trying to comfort them. And as he's talking to them, he's trying to remind them of his intentions and the plan of God. He says, there's a, there's a dwelling place with me. That's the plan. That's the sovereign plan from the beginning uh, that's happening here. So don't let your heart be troubled. And what you're perceiving as loss is actually going to be a great provision for you. What you're seeing as loss and what you're perceiving as loss is really filled with hope, filled with provision for you. This is what Jesus is pointing to. That's kind of sets the stage for what we're going to see in the next few verses here. So John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says this, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do, catch this, even greater things than these, even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Here's what Jesus is ultimately pointing to, and he's trying to teach his followers. He's trying to teach his disciples. He said, you're going to see the church. You're going to see my people empowered by the Holy Spirit doing the work that God saved and redeemed them for. He's like, you're going to see further evidence that what I've told you about me and what I'm doing in the world is true. You're going to see even further promises uh, that what I've told you, my promises are sure. And he uses this phrase, greater things. I was, uh, quite frankly, really struck by that idea uh, this week, and I tried to to pray through that. I tried to ask God, okay, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? What's that mean for us as a a church? Um, There's a tendency in all of us to think of the greater thing, like when we hear the greater thing, well, that must be uh, a bigger or better version of what was, especially when you're faced with a setback or especially when you're faced with, with a loss. You know, if you look back at kind of what we've experienced or what you personally have experienced in the past year or year and a half or so, and you think, okay, greater thing, that must be better or bigger than what I've lost. And I think um, what Jesus is referring here to them and, and to us specifically as a church in Gilbert is not necessarily a return to what was or a return to what has been, but what Jesus is trying to teach us and them is that God is going to do a new thing that will be grounded in the work that he's already done. And in our lives, so often, I know I do this, we try to kind of manipulate God 
We try to kind of manipulate God to do what we've seen or to do what we've experienced because it's a safer thing, especially when we felt or have feeling loss. And Jesus is saying, no, expect the new thing. Anticipate greater things. It might not be as spectacular as what you used to. It might be smaller, but if my spirit is in it, what Jesus is saying, it's a greater work. Now, you could read that, and I think maybe the disciples were thinking this, okay, greater Greater things, I, I don't really understand that because, you know, we've, we've seen you turn water into wine. We've seen you walk on water. We've seen you raise people from the dead. The whole thing with Lazarus, that was a pretty great thing. So how could we do something greater than that? What are, what are you talking about? Well, well certainly uh, the works of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit um, are, are still on display today. There are still healings. There are still miraculous things that are happening because the power of Christ is alive and well today just as it was in the first centuries. But most scholars will, will, will say that the context of what Jesus is saying here is because I'm going to the Father, meaning this. Jesus is saying, okay, one person, meaning himself, I accomplished quite a bit in my three-year ministry here, but long after I depart, Jesus is pointing to there is a bride, there's a church, there are my people, there's a family, a community of my people who will accomplish in greater scope and greater reach than anything that you've seen. He's talking about ministry qualitatively because in the three years of Jesus, it all took place in about a hundred-mile radius and with a limited group of people. But, but after Jesus departs, we see that the gospel spreads far beyond Jerusalem and Judea, even to the ends of the earth, that there is every tongue and tribe and nation, the scripture says, every people group will, will, will confess that Jesus is Lord before Christ will return. And all of the work done by the church is Christ's work. It's what's described in Acts chapter one. In Acts chapter one, uh, verse four, it says this, on one occasion while he was eating with them, this is Jesus, he gave the command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That was always kind of on their mind. But he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, wait here because you will receive power. And we don't have time to go there this morning, but if you look in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit does show up. Peter, the very same Peter uh, who couldn't confess to a, a teenage servant girl that he was a follower of Jesus, that very same Peter stands up before thousands. Now he's preaching to a massive crowd, and he's saying, you are guilty of nailing Jesus to the cross, but forgiveness and grace are available, and right now you can be saved. It's this amazing sermon that Peter preaches in the, in the book of Acts. So what, what happened there? What's the difference? What, what happened for Peter around the fire who just denied that he even knew Jesus to now preaching to this massive crowd? Well, the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying in John is that there's a power that's going to be made available to you to do the works that I give you that I will send to you, but I have to leave first. He's saying the Holy Spirit is my presence that brings power. 
And that power will bring peace. The Holy Spirit is my presence that brings power, and that power will bring peace. Verse 13, it says this, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So get this. The disciples are super rattled right now. They're experiencing or looking forward to this great loss. They don't fully understand it. Jesus is saying, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he says, and then he says this, not only are you going to be where I am, not only am I preparing a place, and then I'll come back, and then you'll be with me, but I'm going to the Father, but I'm still going to hear you, and I'll still be attentive, and I'll still care about what's going on with you. In fact, because I'm going to be with the Father, you can ask anything in my name, and I'll do it. I will hear you, and if you ask it in my name, I'll do it. Okay, so let me real quick pause and talk about what this doesn't mean. Because this is not a text that means Jesus is your genie. Our prayers are not just kind of magical incantations so that Jesus will grant whatever you wish. It's not like free tacos for life in Jesus' name. Let the Cardinals win the Super Bowl in Jesus' name. Not going to happen, folks. Sorry. (laughs) The phrase, whatever you ask in my name, is evidenced by the fruit that comes from the works in verse 12. So if you look at verse 12 there, that leads to the glory of the Father. And Christ answering anything we ask in verse 14 depends on it leading to the Father's glory in verse 13. So that's all connected there. Um, John would write in 1 John chapter 5, I I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything, and this is the qualifier, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. John's saying it's the prayer of God. It's the, it's the your kingdom come prayer. Not, not my will, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is asking for what Jesus delights in, for what best reveals the will of God. What Jesus is saying, you are praying according to my likeness and according to my will and according to my agenda. And when you do that, Jesus is saying, you unlock the power of my, of my presence. R.C. Sproul says it this way, to pray in Christ's name is to identify with Christ to the extent that our will has become identified with the will of God. When you pray in Christ's name, there is an alignment of wills. There's a submission of my will, my desire, my agenda, what I want underneath unto the will of God. Praying in Christ's name has everything to do with aligning our affections and aligning our desires and our will in accordance with Jesus. And it's an acknowledgement that the power to accomplish what God wants is not in our power, but in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It's an alignment of wills, and it's a, it's a confidence in our access to 
and it's for our alignment with Jesus. It, it, it's a confidence of our access to the Father because of Jesus. We come boldly before the throne because of Jesus. Um, a few years ago, me and a couple other pastors were in New York City for a, a training. We were in a week-long training there. Um, and, and while we were there, there's a guy who used to play for the, the New York Giants. Uh, he's a Christian. He, we're friends with him. He knows our church. Uh, and, and one of the pastors uh, got in touch with him and said, hey, we sh- we've got a free evening. Can we grab dinner? Can we get together? And so uh, we, he said, yeah, just meet me at this restaurant. Meet me at this place. Uh, Tell them that you're there to meet me, and they'll take you back to Connor's room. So we did. We went right to this place, really nice place. We walk in. We walk to the door. They're like, hey, do you have a reservation? No, but we're here to meet this guy. We dropped his name. They said, okay, great. Let us take you in. So they take us behind the rope, take us back into the back room, go to this kind of like special room and have a meal with this guy. His name allowed us access into the place. Uh, Conversely, uh, my sister lives in New York City, and she used to work for NBC, and so we went to see her at at 30 Rock, at the building where she worked, and she's like, hey, do you want to go down and see uh, Saturday Night Live, see where the set is? It's downstairs in the basement. That'd be awesome. So we go down to this elevator uh, and go off on the floor, and we're kind of walking around, and it was a day where they weren't um, shooting, but they were kind of prepping all the stages and stuff, so there weren't that many people around, but we're kind of sneaking around and checking out, and it's cool, and you see all the pictures and see the set and see the stage and all that kind of stuff. And we get stopped by a security guard. And he's like, who are you guys? What are you doing here? My sister says, well, I'm, I'm Gail. I work upstairs. He goes, I don't know you. <laughs> You're not supposed to be here. And so we got kicked out of the Saturday Night Live <laughs> set. We did run into Bobby Moynihan, so I don't know if you know the character Drunk Uncle anyway. We did run into him. Um, And I don't think it's related, but my sister doesn't work at NBC anymore. But (laughs) it's the difference. Like, we have the name gives us access. How do we access this power? How do we access to, how do we use the access to create an alignment with what God wants? And Jesus answers for that in verse 15. He says this, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the best translation of this uh, is this. When you, disciples, love me, you will be keeping these commandments of mine. So Jesus is not questioning their love. He, he's assuming it. It's a, it's a future tense. You will be keeping my commandments. Remember the progression here. Jesus has washed their feet. He establishes with them a belovedness that's not at risk, that they can know for sure. And out of that, he gives them the command to love one another. Wash each other's feet for the sake of Jesus' mission. Don't miss this. So our resource in obedience of loving Jesus is, is prior and continuing love for and washing us. Meaning, when we trust the first love, which is Jesus' love for us. So this is John's whole thing. Believe into the love that God has for you in the person of Jesus. When we trust that, it enables the second love, our love for one another. Those are the two main things that John is trying to get at. Believe and and love. Those are the commands that Jesus has to his followers. And the first empowers the other. Jesus is not saying love others 
to be qualified for my love. He's not saying that. He's saying my love for you, believed and trusted, is the deep, deep well that your love for others flows out of. Believing God's love for us vertically enables love for one another horizontally. Jesus is not saying you have to jump through a lot of hoops to earn the Holy Spirit. There is some bad teaching that teaches that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit in this passage, not making conditions, but he's talking about abiding. We're gonna get into this more next week. Abide in who God is through prayer and in his word. You can know what obeying his command is, what keeping his commands look like. Uh, Blackaby in Experiencing God, he says, prayer is used to adjust you to God's will, not to adjust God to your will. And, And this might feel like another message, but this is true even when God seems silent. Because sometimes God uses the silence to speak to you. Jesus tells the the disciples in Acts 1, I don't know if you missed this, but he says, wait here for me to show up. Wait here for the power to come. And it's days, weeks, and they're just, what are we doing in this room? Jesus says, wait, wait, power's coming. Power's coming. Because in that waiting, I'm working. Again, a whole nother message but God has laid out his desires in his word so that you can know for certain what is in line with who he is and what he's up to in the world. You can pray, you know, you can't really pray according to the will of God if you don't know what the will of God is. And God's left us his scriptures and we pray them to his father. And he knows that if we're going to do what he's given us to do, he knows that we don't have what it takes to do that, to obey on our own and our own strength and our own sufficiency. We need the presence and the power of God. We can't just manufacture that on our own. And again, Jesus is not reducing love to obedience in these verses, but he's going to be setting up a contrast between the disciples who love him and show it by obeying versus the world who doesn't know him or love him or following him. He's going to say in just a moment, the world is hostile to God, so they don't follow, they don't obey because they don't love me. He's saying, but you do. You do love me. I know you love me. And so you will obey, and I'm going to give you something to help you in that. I'm going to give you everything that you need to abide in the works that I've given you. You need to understand here, Jesus is giving an invitation, not an ultimatum, meaning that all true disciples want to do what Jesus says. All true disciples want to do what Jesus says, but the reality is, not many of us ever feel like we fully do, a la the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. To want to believe is a form of believing. To want to believe is a sign of life. It's a sign that God's called you out of death. To want to love is a way of legitimately beginning to love. So don't miss the heart of the gospel of what Jesus is inviting us into One pastor says it this way, those Christians most filled with the Holy Spirit are the least conscious of it. All they know is that they want to serve Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. We're moving along here. He says, and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate 
to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and look at the end of that, will be in you. Now he's saying when I leave, here's the ultimate thing. He's trying to kind of expand their view. You know, when you're suffering loss, when you're experiencing the loss of something, or the potential loss of something, you can't really see anything else. It's just so myopic. You're just, and I understand it, but we just get honed in on the thing that we're about to lose. And what Jesus is trying to do is just kind of let them look up and lift their head and expand their view, expand their vision. He says, if you can expand your vision to who I am and what I'm doing, it's gonna actually expand your peace. It's gonna expand your comfort. And and that's gonna expand your boldness which will ultimately expand the mission. He's saying, listen, I know, I know you're rattled, but what I'm telling you is I'm gonna leave and you're gonna level up. The, the consistent movement of, of God is to be closer and closer and closer with his people. I mean, if you look just through the entire scriptures, the entire story of God, it's God consistently moved. Even when Adam and Eve have to leave the garden, God doesn't say, well, good luck out there. He goes with them. He goes with him, and now it's culminating in not, not only have I been with you, not only did I put on flesh and walk al- alongside you, with you, God says, I'm now going to be in you. Okay, so imagine, again, don't lose the context. We followed Jesus We've heard the teaching, we've seen the miracles, we've fallen in love with him, we realize that he's the son of God, and now he's leaving. But he says, I'm sending another, I'm sending another helper, I'm sending another advocate. Different translations use a different word there because there really is no one Greek word to fully describe everything of what the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Uh, Another can either mean uh, like a different kind of or it can be uh, another that is just like me. In, In the Greek, what Jesus is saying there is I'm sending you another that is just like me. I'm gonna butcher this. Parakletos. The, the paraclete, it literally means one called alongside to help in especially critical situations. It's, uh, it's like this picture, like if you were on trial, if you're on trial and for you to, to win the case, for you to be free, you need an expert witness that can come in and testify and the witness of that expert witness is what's actually gonna set you free. That's the kind of the idea. That's what Jesus is saying. There's gonna be an expert witness that's gonna show up and that's gonna set you free. It's gonna win the case. Martin Luther referred to the Holy Spirit as the, the truster because the, the Spirit Um, encourages trust, believing in Jesus, and encouragement, love of others more than any other responsibilities. Eugene Peterson would refer to the Holy Spirit as the, the truth friend. He's a helping presence. Uh, And the Hebrew equivalent to this Greek idea is, is Eve. Like if you don't have her, Adam, you're never going to make it. That's the, that's the connection there. Wives are like, amen, right? So it's someone that you can't make it without. 
The disciples who've had Jesus all along, he says, look, I'm, I'm going to heaven, but I'm gonna send someone to help. Now, I understand that the Holy Spirit can be the most misunderstood person in the Trinity, forgotten even sometimes, and, some, and it feels like there's either two extremes. There's either like all we ever do is talk about the Holy Spirit and the, and the manifestations and the, and, the, and, the, and the power and the work of the Spirit, or it's like we totally ignore that the Holy Spirit even exists. But when we start to understand the role of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus is going to explain here and we'll see kind of unfold over the next weeks, we see that the Father initiates the plan of God, Jesus executes that plan of salvation, and the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the revelation of that plan to us, who gives us insight and inspiration of his word. So that means that the Holy Spirit's not bringing attention to himself, but to Jesus. The Spirit is how we know that Jesus is in, in God's. In other words, when you see someone in a spotlight, you're not thinking about like, man, oh, that's a great spotlight. You're, con- you're concentrating on the one that the spotlight is shining on. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of holiness and truth given to us to show that he is God. He's not different than God. He is God fully encompassing the truth that is in the nature and character of God. The reason that it's the Holy Spirit is because he's God. And Jesus wants you to know, although I'm leaving, God is not. God's gonna be with you. In fact, he's gonna be in you. And he's gonna empower you to do even greater works. It's the indwelling power of God that enables us to do his will. Church, this is so important for us because without the Spirit, without the presence and the power of the Spirit, we as a church can only do the works that we can do. I don't want to be a part of that because that's not going to be great. It's not going to be greater. It's like when you move You know, somebody can help you move a couch, but a helper, a better helper, a greater helper shows up with the big truck. The Holy Spirit is the big truck that will allow us to do the work that God desires for us to do. And he says the dwelling place of that spirit is in you. It's in you. He's like, I know I've been walking with you but when the counselor comes, when the advocate comes, when the true friend comes, when the, when the true encourager comes, he's gonna be in you. And the, and the you there is actually plural. Yes, there is a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about his church. So get that, in you, in this community, God will be present, he'll be in you, which is a pretty amazing thought. Look at verse 18. He says this, He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. I know you feel like you're gonna be all alone, but I'm not gonna leave you in a place of isolation. God is your father, Jesus is saying. I'm your your brother. There's gonna be a whole family of people that you're connected to as brothers and sisters. You're not alone. You're gonna be with family. And he's not saying, hey, listen, everything, there's not ever gonna be a storm. He's saying, I'm gonna be present. I'm gonna be in the midst of the storm. The presence and the power of God in every situation. That's the peace that Jesus is bringing. The presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit is directly related to them not being orphans. Look at verse 19. We're gonna read through some big sections here. He says this. He says, before long, the world will come to, to you, or before, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. 
Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, which by the way, how rough is that? The whole rest of this guy's life, he's got to be like, I'm not Judas Iscariot. I'm another Judas. It's like, that's a different guy. Anyway. But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. And anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Now, big, big section there. But real quick, this is what is happening. The disciples will see the risen Savior. We're going we're gonna to see that. And when they do, it will, in them, raise them to a new level of mystery. It will raise them out of despair. It will raise them out of confusion and fear to a powerful gospel work throughout the whole world. The goal of obedience that's being described here is intimacy with God because God has shown us who he is. He's saying if you believe into Jesus, into God, Jesus is saying I want you to know that you're loved. I want you to know that you're loved by the Father the same way that I am loved by the Father. And that is the path to intimacy, to first receive the love of God in the person of Jesus, and then you walk out that love in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it's, that's how it's cultivated. He's not saying, look, you have to earn love. You have to earn salvation by obeying. It's not that at all. It's already provided. It's secured. The price has been paid. It can never be taken away. But what he's saying is if you want to enjoy intimacy with the Father, as one who's been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the key pathway is if you walk in obedience. You, you can't enjoy intimacy and fellowship with the Father while you're rebelling against him. Your, chapter 15 is really all about this, the, this connection between obe- obedience and intimacy. Again, it's not performing for it. It's proving that it's already there. It, it's like if I want to grow in intimacy, if I want to grow closeness with my wife, I'm not going to be doing that by spending time with other women. I'm not going to be doing that by chasing other things or spending time away from her. The Holy Spirit encourages and instructs and moves us into a life of deeper obedience and intimacy and convicts us when we are in rebellion of the covenant that Christ has secured for us. And I just think this reality was all over John. I think when John was penning this, I think the Spirit of God was all over him. And this was just like really, he's like, I can't believe that I am loved by the Father the same way that Jesus was loved by the Father. In 1 John 1, he says this, we proclaim to you what we've seen and what we've heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And, and I just imagine John writing this, this next phrase, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. He's like, I have such a grown-up, mature joy because I know that I have this fellowship with Jesus and this fellowship with Father. He said, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. If we claim that we have fellowship with him, but yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. What John is saying is that those who love God, who are indwelt by the Spirit of God and obey the commands of God that abide in him, intimacy grows there. My love affair with Jesus just catches on fire and it empowers us 
for what Jesus has. My joy grows, he's saying, because he's at home with me, in me. Let's finish this section here, verse 25. It says this, all this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Again, Jesus is saying the, the role of the Holy Spirit brings to light, illuminates the truth of God, the word of God in our hearts and our lives. In fact, Paul would tell the Corinthian church, apart from the Holy Spirit, man cannot accept the truth of God on its own. He said, in fact, it's foolishness. And what Jesus is saying, by listening to the Holy Spirit, he'll remind us of what Jesus has said and done, and he will give us fresh and faithful revelations from these teachings of Jesus. We learn everything that we need to know now in this life by what Jesus said and did then. So church, everything that we need for renewal and to love our neighbors is found in the ancient teachings of Jesus and in his way of living. And the call, the call is for us to be Jesus-centered and Holy Spirit-powered. That's the call on our church. And when we do, when we walk in obedience and allegiance with who he is and what he desires, we'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the washing of the word over us will gain this intimacy. The, 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 Jesus will, the Spirit will remind us of what we have in, in Christ. Pastor Tony Evans says, the issue for the believer is not how much of the Spirit we have, but how much the Spirit has us. You see, we have all that we want of God, but does he have all of us? Does he have all of your life? Does he have all of your marriage? Does he have all of your vocation? Does he have all of your time? Does he have all of your money? How much does God have? Because I was really confronted with this this week where I was like, how much of this church does God have? Are there things that we, in our church, that we need to give back to God because we've held on to them like they're ours? Without our lives being submitted to the Spirit of God, we slip back into what we can only do on our power. If you want to experience the Spirit of God, the presence and the power and the peace of God, the Spirit must have control in your life. You must be controlled by the Holy Spirit. By us living a life submitted to him that says, apart from you, I can do nothing. I will not move without your presence. I will not move without your power. And I'm gonna pray until my will and my desires and my agenda is aligned with you. And when he gets more of us, that's when we start to move in his ways. That's when we experience a more complete joy, a more mature joy. Last verse, we're done. It says this in verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. The, the Jewish way of, of greeting one another is to say peace or shalom. It means may things go well with you in every way. And Jesus wants his disciples to be well in the deepest possible sense. And it's important for them to hear this because in the next few hours, they are not going to be keeping the commands of Jesus. 
They'll deny, they will scatter, they will fail in every possible way. But Jesus will still give them the Spirit because his relationship with them and his relationship with you and his relationship with me is grounded in grace, not our obedience. That's what gives us peace. Even though we know how fragile we are, how flawed we are, and failed, we can be extravagantly loved and secure and prized by majesty. That's the peace of God. It's not the peace that the world offers through politics or prosperity or products or any other promise. Jesus gives us peace by supplying the very means of peace. His Holy Spirit, his grace, the superabundance of God himself, which allows us to trust him and have a heart that cares for what he cares about. Why is settling our troubled hearts at ease so important to Jesus? He repeats it here. He already said it once. He comes back around. Why is that so important? Why does he say it again? Because our peacefulness expresses trust, or at the very least, a want to trust in our heavenly Father, his faithful Son, our brother Jesus, and in his powerful, powerful spirit, and it stirs up our heart for God and for the world.